Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps, episode 11, third episode of season two. So in my quest to be completely honest with my listeners, this is like my fifth attempt to record this episode. I actually recorded a 65-minute episode a couple of hours ago, and I listened thinking, okay, I can choose 30 good minutes from it. And it was, in some ways, not surprisingly, a really, really jumbled story that I don't even think my mother would find all that interesting. (laughs) It's very difficult. I've said this before, and I think any good podcaster would be remiss if they didn't admit, admit this as well. I'm not following a recipe to teach somebody a skill. I'm not, you know, interviewing somebody. I'm not famous. I'm telling a really painful story. And to tell it properly and to give it credibility and to keep the listener wanting to listen, it has to be organized and and told thoughtfully and, and clearly. And I haven't. I've done a couple of these before where I've sent off a 60 minute episode to my editor and said, I think I'll just do a new one. And that's been a good idea. So I'm smiling and laughing as I share it, but I'm actually really frustrated. And that's me being honest as well. I want the podcast to be right. If I just wanted to hear myself talk, I would submit it, but it's not like that. There's too much importance in this story, not just because they're my kids and it's my story. I'm the least important piece of this, quite honestly. But episode 11, number three in season two, where we discuss mom. The last episode was a surprising story about baby Gordy, and I hadn't even thought to share that in this particular season because it seemed like a separate piece. But what I'm learning as I tell this story is really how interconnected my four children are, both to me, obviously, and then to each other. Gordy was completely unplanned, but without Gordy, I never would have known the feel of a baby in my belly, and that led me to create Gracie. Gracie was very much the impetus for Molly being conceived and coming here because I wanted her to have a sibling. And while Molly's influence on influence on Jack's existence here is a bit skewed in the sense that it's her death that perhaps precipitated his arrival, there, it's still a connection. It's still a thread. It's still a series of children being a big piece of and a determining factor in whether the next one would arrive. And so that's, I think, the most important piece of this next episode is that Gracie's arrival was the most amazing thing ever. And it didn't take me long to realize that sweet little Gracie would benefit from a sibling. And I didn't think at the time whether it mattered if it was a girl or a boy. I didn't think it mattered at all. Quite honestly, I just thought that she needed a buddy to wait for Santa with to be a little girl with, have a mommy and a daddy, and then two kids. And so that was our plan. And so... Well, that was our plan once we realized (laughs) Gracie should have a sibling. So Gracie was born in 2001, and the first year of her life was exactly what you think it would be. I I was overwhelmed most of the time. Kenny was working a million hours. My mother was over all the time. Because other than Kelsey, this was the only grandbaby, and we we were close. 
my niece Kelsey is about 11 years older than Gracie. It was a very typical year. I was still teaching and coaching, although half-time teaching. My life was as busy as ever. And between Kenny and my mother and I, we juggled it and made it work. My mother pretty much lived here 12 hours a day, five days a week. And of course, she'd come on the weekends. But weekends were Kenny's and Kenny would spend weekend times with Gracie. And I was just interspersed. It was, you know, I was always the one nursing her, obviously. And and when there was downtime, she was with me because I'm her mom. But we really, you know, shared, we shared that first year equally in so many ways. And when she turned one and started to be bigger, you know, and a little bit more like a toddler, that's when it really dawned on me that perhaps Gracie needed a sibling. And so she turned one at the end of April. She just started to walk. She started to show the beginning signs of walking. At that time, she'd take some steps on the track at track practice, really started putting together her walking in June. So she was 14 months old. And that's a significant month for two reasons. The first reason is that I took a group of my runners, Rachel Lumberger, Ashley Forrester, Carrie Bova, Jocelyn Woods, and Chrissy Fulton. The five girls, myself, Kenny and Gracie, Jack Frazier, off we went, Rachel's mom, Chrissy's mom, off we went to North Carolina to have Rachel run the Nationals. And she was a junior. And this was a big movement, a big a big event for us. And I really have to thank Jack because I think I would have waited until Rachel's senior year. That was my thoughts at the time in coaching a national caliber runner. But I didn't. Uh, I listened to Jack <laughs> and took her. We went to North Carolina in the spring of 2002. And Rachel was a national champion. She won the 800. And I remember every time I cheered for her, Gracie would cry. We have a video of it somewhere. And every time I say, go, Rachel, you hear Gracie crying in the background. That's where Gracie really got her walking legs. And then we went on our typical Jersey Shore vacation. We had gone the year before just with Gracie. Now we were back. So there we were on the Jersey Shore and Gracie's walking along the beach so proud of herself. And it really, really became obvious to me that I needed to have another baby. So I came home and had an appointment with Dr. Walsh. And he gave me all the, you know, you're almost you're going to be 39 and you're still nursing and you're old, you know, all of those things. And I said, sure, sure, sure. And I went home and conceived Molly <laughs> about two weeks later. One try and there she was. I knew I was pregnant before I missed my period, the advantageous convenience of pea sticks. And my stepdaughter, she had a hunch too, because I made a comment that I was suddenly craving diet Pepsi. And I really didn't think I was pregnant at the time. Really, it was just early, early in a few days, maybe. So there came Molly. I went off to Princeton and everyone wondered why I was pudgy. Well, I'm like three weeks pregnant and I'm pudgy already. But <laughs> the second time around, the body remembers. And I was I was showing with Molly much sooner than with Gracie. And people knew right away. I was pretty obvious. I told a lot of people right away that I was pregnant. I think the first person I told this time was Rachel, her senior year. So yeah, we were out on a run, a summer, a summer running run, and I let her know. She had these big eyes. Ooh. Molly's pregnancy was very, very similar to Gracie's. And like all of my pregnancies, really relatively seamless and pain-free. I, I enjoy being pregnant. I have the, a body that's made to be pregnant, as we know. And Molly's pregnancy was very uneventful in any sort of significant way. She was the same, you know, it was the same experience with Gracie. Some, some differences would be I had very big food cravings and food aversions with Gracie, not so much with Molly at all. That would probably be the biggest one. And I got to be a bit heavier with Molly, but I started heavier. So I think part of it was just that. I didn't work out as much. I wasn't doing CrossFit then. A neat little thing is I was pregnant with Molly and Gracie both when cross Concord High School Girls Cross Country won their New England titles. And when you look at the pictures with the 2000 team, you can't tell I'm pregnant at all. And with the 2002 team, it's pretty apparent I have a little baby bump. Molly Banzoff came into the world April 1st, 2003.
I could have potentially had her a week earlier. I was ready to go for quite a while. She was much closer to her due date than Gracie had been. But I wanted her to come when she came on her own. And so I went into labor at eight in the morning and had her at three in the afternoon, which is the exact same time as, as Gracie, but daytime versus nighttime. Gracie was eight at night, three in the morning. And my labor was quite up. Uh, opposite as well. With Gracie, it was all, I was vomiting and vomiting during the contractions. And I had eaten a big meal and it was nighttime. And I think that might be why. With Molly, I hadn't eaten anything. So I, I made it through the contractions quite fine. It was the pushing. So the pushing for Gracie was a relief and it was easy. You know, I didn't have anything in my body or my bowel. So she just came out. <laughs> I, I'd thrown up and gone to the bathroom all day with Gracie. With Molly, I'd done neither of those things. So although I hadn't eaten any significant amount of food, I hadn't gone to the bathroom either. And so Molly's delivery will always be the delivery of poop. The contractions were quite easy. And then when it came to the pushing, Molly just decided she was done with this and didn't want to come out. And I had to have Pitocin. And she came out just fine when she finally came out. Like a football, I will say. You know, you have an old school male gynecologist when he says, okay, don't push. <laughs> okay, I won't push. The giant baby wants to come out. She's right there. I'm having a contraction, but I won't push. I thought that, I remember thinking that was funny at the time. I did push. And I had some stitches to pay for that decision. But Molly had, they had to break her water and Molly, you know, pooped in the inside. And so there was, there was meconium in the amniotic fluid. And that can be dangerous for babies because they can aspirate it. So maybe that was foreshadowing of the worst kind, but I, I already had anxiety over Molly's well-being before she was even out because I was afraid that she had breathed in the meconium. It's very sticky and it can be very dangerous to babies that breathe it in. Sometimes they don't make it. Sometimes they have to have surgery. So then I was thinking maybe I should have induced her a week earlier, but I didn't. And April 1st brought Molly Bands off. Her favorite thing to say to people when they asked her when was her birthday, April 1st, but I'm no fool. And she meant it. She came into the world at 3.45 in the afternoon. A great little tidbit about her birth is while I was in labor, Joyce Mammoth, the athletic secretary at Concord High School, called to ask how it was going because I wasn't at practice. And I was pushing. I was actively pushing at that time. I think it was like right around 3 o'clock when school got out. And all the cross-country girls, I mean, the track girls at that time were in the office, all the distance runners. And so I'm like, I'm pushing. It's really cute. So they all came up to see me. And it was the same group, pretty much the same group I had taken to Nationals the year before, along with Ali Connolly and then that year, and maybe Devin DeVoe. There was a group of them anyway. And they all came up to Concord, uh, to Concord Hospital to visit me. And they pushed Carrie in, in a wheelchair. And so at first I'm in a panic. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's April Fool's. They're kidding me. Well, they weren't. Carrie had, in the rush to get in the car, she had turned her ankle. And, <laughs> And she was in tears. She ended up having a great season. It was fine. But it was just a fun little, it's a fun memory for me now around Molly's birth. The first few weeks home were really hard on Gracie. Gracie was a tender, tender baby. Oh, so tender. And she very much snuggled with me at night. Our bedtime ritual was mommy and Gracie. And so I remember Kenny saying at, at times, oh boy, this is not going to be good. She's right under your chin and you sing to her every night. This is not going to go well. And I was concerned about it because... You know, it really, it really could have gone poorly. You know, I sang her all these Barney songs and things. And so the first few weeks were unbelievably difficult. I just felt, I felt that I wanted Molly to have as much love and attention as Gracie had gotten, but I could not give her that because I would have to ignore Gracie to do it. And so I just felt like a, like a failure most of the time, not realizing that whatever love I gave Molly was all she would know. She wouldn't know it any different or feel like she was missing out or remember for that matter. But it was very important to me that Molly feel wanted and loved and welcome. And so I spent many sleepless nights trying to cuddle them both. And, you know, can I have, if I had Gracie on the other side of Molly when Molly was nursing, then Gracie wanted to cuddle and now Molly's in the middle of getting squished. And there was no way to make it right. It was so difficult. One night in particular stands out. 
I finally had Molly nurse to sleep. I roll over to snuggle Gracie. She's on her side facing away from me. I roll her over and tears are just pouring down her face. And I just, oh, it made me feel so bad. It still does. Just because it was such a tender, tender moment. And she was so sad. But we made it through. And as Molly got older and stronger and Gracie became more accustomed to her being there and, and we figured out ways for me to have alone snuggle time with Gracie, things got better. And I remember one Saturday morning, you know, sort of lounging in bed there and I'm nursing Molly and I look over because Gracie had still been asleep and she was just waking up and <laughs> and she peeks up over my body. She kneels up over and looks and, and the look on her face when she saw Molly was like, oh, and she made the sweet face and put her hands up like this. If you can see me, I'm just sort of cradling my hands. And it was the sweetest thing. And I felt such immense relief because that was just a spontaneous evidence of love for Molly. And it was the beginning of what would be the maybe the best love affair ever of Gracie's life. No, that sounds dramatic, but they really had it. So as Molly got older, she and Gracie just became more and more inseparable. Molly would immediately look for her. Gracie would want to play with her. I have a memory one summer night in the kitchen. Molly was maybe five or six, like April, maybe like four months old, five months old. And, and Gracie was marching around the high chair and then she'd look at her and Molly would look one way and then look the other. And I remember Kenny and I high-fiving, we did it. It's arrived. And that was the beginning of it. That was the beginning of, of the most amazing sister, sister bond ever, ever. And so as they got older, as Molly became more able to do things and more mobile and Gracie became more understanding of the limitations of her little sister and, and all, they were just together all the time. My mother, when I begin to have guests on this podcast, my mother, I will have my mother tell Gracie and Molly stories because she was with them all day. She was my at-home childcare. She got to raise her granddaughters. And I would come home at night and every book in the, in the bookshelf was on, in a pile on the floor because she had just read to them. Gracie would bring the books over. My mother would read them. Molly would be riveted. Gracie would listen and ask questions. And they had just the best time. And so the first year of Molly's life, which was the third year of Gracie's life, was phenomenal, you know, and they, they really grew together. When Gracie turned three, so that would have been, you know, Molly would have been a year and a half at that time. She started taking dance classes and Molly would sit and watch. Molly was a late walker. She did not walk at 14 months. <laughs> she walked at 18 months. She just didn't didn't want to walk. And looking back now with a lot of her little funny idiosyncrasies neurologically and strength-wise, I wonder sometimes if that was tumor-related, but I don't know. So she she and Gracie, she would just watch Gracie dance, watch, watch. And at first she was, she'd sit in whoever's lap was there. And then she could stand and she'd, so she'd stand on the floor in front of the chair between the knees of whoever was there. And she just watched. She never missed a beat. And Molly had these huge eyes. That second year of Molly's life and, you know, Gracie starting dance was, it was a huge memory for me because it was the precursor to what would become a lifetime passion for them was dance and then theater. And so at the end of that year, when they were practicing their dance, Molly knew every step of Gracie's dance and Miss Cindy had her come up and do it with them in class one day. It was sweet. Here's Gracie's baby. And she was Gracie's baby and she is Gracie's baby. And one of the hardest pieces of my grief and all the mistakes I feel I made in keeping Molly alive sent her around what Gracie lost. I'm an adult and adults were more prepared to lose things. Not that child loss can be prepared for, but she was 15 and she had no business losing her sister. And so that sits with me hard all the time, all the time. So, so began Gracie and Molly's lifetime relationship with Concord Dance Academy and dancing and they loved it. And they danced at home and they danced at school and they danced under the table with their feet. And it was just, it just became a piece of their life. Dance camp in the summer and the Christmas show Molly and Gracie were in the first ever Christmas show. So, you know, there hasn't been a Christmas show yet without Gracie in it. 
pretty amazing. The very first year they had it, Gracie and Molly were in it. It was a really beautiful picture of Molly in this little blue ballet dress. So began their life together. Gracie went off to preschool. Molly would anxiously wait for Gracie to come home. They would have their time together. Then Gracie goes to kindergarten. Molly goes to preschool. And so their school life starts. And they were very different. Gracie was very, had very slow auditory processing and, and her comprehension, verbal comprehension was low. So school was difficult for her and she didn't respond much. She was very, very quiet. Molly, on the other hand, knew the, every answer to every question. <laughs> Wasn't afraid to offer up what she knew or thought to be true. More so at home than at school. I think she was a bit quieter at school. But even when they were apart, they were together. They would have plans. Well, I remember Molly was still in preschool and Gracie was in first grade and it was like a school pictures, but it was like not the official one. It was like a winter one. And if you wanted to take it, you could. And I had them in matching braids and these pink striped dresses. And Molly kept hiding this stuffed animal. I'm like, you can bring the stuffy, Molly. What is it? And she's like, nothing. And then she gets into the hallway and Gracie comes running out and grabs her stuffed animal right out in front of me. Molly and I are going to carry stuffed animals today. And I just looked at Molly like, why wouldn't you tell me that? But Molly would have overthought the, thought it. She would have thought that maybe I would say no. Like, I think she, <laughs> it was just just how different they were. But they had made these plans in the morning and executed them in the afternoon when Molly was home and Gracie was still at school. So that's one of my favorite pictures. They're standing at this little fence with their little stuffies. That's <laughs> so cute. But that's how they were. They were just together all the time. I have pictures. I'd come home and every toy was out and they arranged in these intricate things that they had done. They, would, they wouldn't play with the toys as they, as they were meant to be played with. They would create their own games and create their own scenes and you know, they, they used American Girl doll furniture to make a restaurant for their stuffed animals. <laughs> you know, like they just had these different, they had so many different ideas. They took the Cinderella thing and made and took all their stuff, the pumpkin carriage, and made it an Iditarod sled, you know, like with the sled dogs. They, they just, they would see something and they would turn it into whatever they played with. It was the most amazing thing. As they grew, you know, things with Kenny and I were good. You know, it was, it was just sort of a very normal, normal life. And I remember when I think back to A Thousand Tiny Steps and all the decisions and left-hand turns, I remember I applied for a sabbatical when Molly was still in preschool and that was denied. And I wasn't prepared. I remember Betty Holdley asking me all these horrible questions and making me feel like this tall. And, you know, and she she was just wanting to make sure if we're going to spend money on a salary that isn't being used in a classroom, that the sabbatical be worthwhile. But I remember sitting in the car and just thinking, is this can't be all there is. And I know that sounds horrifying. I have two healthy, beautiful children, a gorgeous house, a husband I'm in love with. What do you mean this can't be all there is? But I had this panicked feeling of just becoming regular and mundane and of kind of disappearing. And maybe that's just a giant ego in my head. I, I punish myself for these thoughts all the time. And I remember just praying, please, God, please, God, please, God, let this not be all there is. And I guess I was thinking that that was for my sabbatical. But when I look at the events that came into my life shortly after, I feel like I asked for everything I got. You know, I know, I don't know. My spiritual mentor might say I shouldn't think this way, but sometimes those thoughts come into my head. Well, a year later, I did get the sabbatical, and I spent a wonderful year. Molly was in kindergarten that year, and Gracie in second grade, and I did a whole sabbatical on cooperative games and health, social health, emotional health, physical health. It was a blast. I had so much fun. I'm using literacy to teach all these things. Really, really good time. And I spent hours at Kimball School, where Gracie and Molly were, and at Walker School, where a lot of Molly's future classmates were, Nate. Bankston up the street, Habaku, Patience, Decante, Deep Sika, a whole bunch, all sorts of friends of Molly's later on. The following year, so Molly, first grade and third grade is a normal school year. Things are good. I mean, as good as they can be. I got involved in helping a family that was having some crisis and it ended up really biting me in the butt. 
and backfiring profoundly. And the following fall, when Molly were in, Molly and Gracie were in second and fourth grade, I ended up having a very, very ugly run-in with our superintendent. She had come across some information that was completely false. And I will dedicate an entire podcast to this. It's not important now. But the upshot is, because I helped this family, and because a very corrupt superintendent was still working in the Compton School District, I was set up and suspended from my job, and then really just strong-armed by a poor legal, poor legal representation and a corrupt lawyer on the district side into resigning from a 21-year teaching career. And it floored me. I was devastated. Devastated. During this time, Gracie and Molly, for the beginning portion, didn't know that this had happened at all. Their life continued on. And at this time, too, our neighborhood sort of fell apart. Some of the neighborhood families were concerned about what was happening with me in the district, and they would suddenly just division. Nobody talked to anybody. Gracie and Molly would come home in tears. Like, it was just, everything was just sort of falling apart. I had a hard time getting out of bed many, many days. And it wasn't until Gracie finally said, please, mommy, please be happy. Please get up. Please get out of bed. That I did. That I finally sort of turned a corner a little bit. This was this would have been at the end of their second and fourth grade year. The one blessing in losing my job is that I had my days free. And I spent so many times. I chaperoned field trips. I visited in their classrooms. I went to performances. I did all of it. All of it. I saw much more of the girls than Kenny did because he would still, albeit ineffectively, working full time. While all this was happening, his business was really financially falling apart. and We were in a heap of trouble. I think sometimes, like I grew up in a very volatile household, lots of fighting and yelling and screaming, always fully aware of the financial instability. I didn't want Molly and Grace to have any of that. I wanted them to be happy. I wanted them to see that Kenny and I were okay. So even though Kenny and I were not okay at all, we, we really did try to put forth a happy front for the girls. We had our family vacations for a number of years and we we just really tried to do the things that we did to keep life as normal as possible. Dance camp and sleepovers and trips to the lake and trips to the beach. In the meantime, I'm living a very duplicitous life, you know, thinking I need to get out of this marriage. Do I stay in this marriage? And and all the while thinking I'm doing the right thing by piecing together a happy home life for my daughters. And And I think if you ask them for the most part until they were old enough to really see into things, that their life was happy and fine. That, yep, mommy was upset sometimes. Daddy was stressed out, not home a lot, but, you know, they had nanny and their friends and they really wanted for nothing. Throughout all of this, Molly and Gracie became closer and closer. We were a family bed family. And I remember very distinctly Santa bringing them a bedroom one year. They didn't have a bedroom and they were old enough now to want one and cleaned it out, cleaned out the room secretly. I did that. And then Christmas Eve, we set it all up. I had bought furniture and painted, done all these things to make this room. We put it together. We just put the whole room together while the girls were outside. We used to have a campfire every Christmas Eve with our neighbors up the street. And we put this room together and, and Santa left their Christmas stockings there. And it was amazing. They had this beautiful bedroom. They loved it. I love the pictures. And although they didn't sleep in it for six more months, what I remember is how, how together they were on it. That they shared the room, but they each had their own bed and they had stickers that they could put on the wall however they wanted. Like it was their room to do with what they wanted. And they loved it. When they finally slept in it in the spring of, I think it was the spring of 2010. So they were, they were nine and seven and nine. I slept in the yellow room. This room that I'm in here right now, the yellow room, there was a bed in here and I slept in here. So I'd be nearby. And I remember when morning came, I hear Molly's voice. I did it. <laughs> she was so proud of herself for sleeping all night in that room. But you know, we were family, bed family. And long after they had that room, there were nights where they said, can we come sleep with you guys? And we'd sleep together. We'd all four of us would sleep together. And it's what really made me stay. Another piece that made me stay, stay committed to sort of showing them this happy life is that I just, their life was so much more important to me than mine. 
and obviously anyone else is around me that, that I just put that first and I can't regret it. Now that I don't have Molly, I don't regret it at all. They went along. Now we're in elementary school. Gracie's working so hard at school. Both of them, every time I go to a parent-teacher conference, all I hear is how sweet they are, how wonderful, how hardworking. People that used to work with me at Walker School <laughs> say, I can't believe that your kids, <laughs> they follow all the rules. It's just really, really kind of sweet and cute. Gracie became known as a very, very quiet, sweet, kind friend, good friend, a helper in very, very subtle ways. And Molly, Molly evoked a response that I can't, I can't even mimic. It was so profound. Every teacher she had, every teacher just shook their head like, who is she? She's so kind. She's so helpful. She would finish her work quickly. And then first thing she did was to help other students that weren't done yet. And she just felt that if she had, it wasn't fair that she had free time just because she knew how to do it. And they didn't because they were struggling. And there was one little boy, Habaku, who was sent from first grade. Molly helped him. And I knew him from kindergarten when I did my sabbatical. And he was a handful, <laughs> the best kind of handful. And she it was her mission. She just didn't want him to struggle and suffer. And every time, every class they were in together, which I think is almost their whole elementary school career together, when she was done her work, she sought him out and helped him with his. And I remember her first grade and second grade teacher trying to let me know that, let her know that she didn't have to do that. Three times she could have it, but she wouldn't. It was in second grade, I think, maybe third, that she wanted to bring a student her Easter basket. We have a lot of refugee students in Concord and one girl didn't have a basket and Molly was insistent that she give her hers. That you know, So we, we put one together for this girl. I think it was Deep Seeker. We made sure she had an Easter basket because, you know, she didn't want, Molly didn't want to feel left out. There was a little girl named Raina that Molly had in her fourth grade class. I remember when I would go get Molly and bring her home, she would often say good, goodbye to Raina as Raina walked home. Hi, Raina, if you're listening. And she didn't like that Raina, you know, Raina moved a lot. So she was standoffish and didn't have a lot of friends. And Molly choreographed a dance and made sure that Raina could dance in it. Molly noticed that she didn't have a lot of, you know, have a lot of activity at recess. And Raina liked to read. And she started a reading club at recess. And also, this girl wouldn't feel alone. In fifth grade, this was, an, if you, any of you have seen her, the video that was made for our lawsuit, A Day in the Life of Molly. Her fifth grade teacher tells a story about Molly earning all her earned money that she could buy, you know, her end of the year prize at the raffle. She gave to Habaku a scooter because she felt very strongly that the reason she could earn all the money and get the homework in on time and get the answers right and not get in trouble and be on time and was because she had a solid family that, you know, a mother that organized her and brought her to school and food to eat and didn't have to worry about things. That was, it was important to her that he be rewarded for what he was able to do. And, and that's what she did with that scooter. And of course the teacher gave her, he had another one, he gave that right to Molly. This was how she was. And this behavior carried through anytime, anytime they went to a sleepover with friends, I would get these, you have the kindest, nicest, most polite children ever. And it wasn't now always just Molly. It was the two of them. I remember Miss Cindy had them work at an open house at Concord Dance Academy once. And when it was over, she just looked at me like, those two are not normal. I've never seen, I've never seen sisters that are like that. So in the last couple of years of Molly's life, when they were getting older and the gossip was getting bigger, they were, they had a pretty lonely year at dance one year. They just felt like left out. You know, they weren't with the really good kids and they were on the young side of their class. And so they just felt left out. And I said, well, you know, don't be snarky and gossipy to get let in you know, go over to the side, stretch, you're there to dance, practice, you know, talk to one another. And by the end of that dance year, they had a whole group of people that they called themselves the dance squad that all sort of congregated there to get away from the gossipy, snippy aspect of dance. And it's dissolution after Molly's death was one of the, another really hard thing for Gracie to cope with. 
wanted things to stay the same and, you know, nothing was the same. But they had this wonderful time at dance where they, they just, I look at the little videos they made. They did Harry Potter videos and funny videos and 30 minute Thursdays where they make these videos for one of their dance teachers, Miss Anna. Like they just started doing all these really fun things at dance. And I remember the summer before Gracie was in sixth, seventh grade and Molly was in fifth. They went off running down the street, trotting along down the street, you know, getting in ready, getting in shape for dance, doing these exercises. And it was another one of those moments like the high chair story where I felt like I did it. I did it. They were just best friends. They were going off running and they would go for walks as they were starting to get older and have more independence. They loved, I mean, we're going to go for a walk and they'd walk around and choose a house they liked that maybe they would buy when they were grown up and talk about what it would be like to be grown up. They were really coming into it. Anytime, anytime, I've talked about this before, that they were fighting and, and disagreeing. We worked really hard to make it so that they could end the fight amicably, be mad at the issue and not each other. And they, they just did this so well. And so on we went up into middle school. And now I'm getting excited thinking I'm going to have these you know two independent girls. And when Gracie gets her license, and that was a big piece of her Instagram bio, the year that Molly died, you know, Gracie would be 15 and a half and Gracie would have to drive Molly everywhere. She couldn't wait for Gracie to get her license. And these, all of these normal pieces of life they were looking forward to. So a big turning, turning point in their lives was Gracie's seventh grade spring. So sixth grade had been rough for Gracie and fourth grade wasn't great for Molly either. That was a hard school year for us. It was a hard dance year, a hard school year. And seventh grade and fifth grade was much, much better, just better in a million different ways. And Gracie became good friends with Erin Clority, who became her best friend at that time. She was just in a better cluster. Dance was better. All of it was just better. In the middle of seventh grade, winter, Miss Christina, one of their dance teachers, asked Gracie to audition for Thoroughly Modern Millie. It was the Runlet Middle School's performance ensemble group, Spring Musical. And Gracie doesn't like to say no. You know, she's definitely a people pleaser. And Molly was beside herself excited for Gracie to do this. Molly helped her with her audition song. Molly helped her, just helped her with everything. They had some little steps they had to do in the audition. And Molly, Molly, they closed the bedroom door and, and admonished me not to listen. And, and I remember the night before auditions, Gracie was just crying. Mommy, if I don't, I'll be disappointed, but I'm just scared. I don't want to. Well, she did it. She got a part. And so was our theater life born. Molly was all over Gracie being in this play. Molly came, anything that Gracie had to do health-wise, painting sets, all of those things, Molly was in on it. I have pictures. I have all these pictures of Gracie's first play and Molly's in all of them. And she went to all the performances and she became obsessed and riveted with Rachel Revelis because Rachel had the lead and, and Molly was just blown away by it. She'd only known, you know, little elementary school theater. She didn't know real theater yet. It was mind boggling for her. And I have a picture of Gracie's, you know, it's her little cast photo, you know, on the fridge in seventh grade. And he taught, this is Gracie Vanthoff and here's what I do. And I have Molly's from Bye Bye Birdie. And I remember when I got Molly's photo from Bye Bye Birdie, I remember thinking, oh, seventh grade, seventh grade. You know, let's see where it goes from here. Not knowing that just a couple of weeks later, Molly would die and their seventh grade pictures would encapsulate the beginning and the end of their theater life together, which is still remains a difficult piece of this story for me. They had two years of the most amazing time. Gracie and Molly were in RB production shows. Gracie did the Children's Theater Project with Molly a couple of times. And they did Peg. So they did three different production companies with shows. Molly did, I think, maybe one or two more shows than Gracie. Molly didn't get cast in a play once and she was devastated. And she and Keisha made this beautiful feather boa for a golden goose. You know, she she just jumped in and knew that, okay, I'm not in the play, then I'm going to work on the play. And she had a blast. I remember her looking at me once and just saying that she had found her people, that she loved dance and performing and she loved the people in theater and she could put the two together. And she loved it. And it really did become who she was in the last two years of her life, in sixth grade and what she lived in seventh grade, 
Molly was a theater girl. And and Gracie was right alongside there as well. Their little cast parties at Friendly's and their rehearsals and their finding costume pieces and dropping them off and picking them up from RB and, and then dance. So in their last three years of life, they were in two years of life, they were in two small groups. One was called Spam and one was called Heaven Can Wait. And they were small group cats. And you know you've arrived as a dancer when you're good enough to be in a small group dance. And that's how they felt. And Spam was hilarious. It was just a funny, funny dance. And then Take Me to Heaven came from Sister Act Two. And it was, they came out all dressed in habits and they pulled them off and their angels underneath. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful dance. And they loved, they loved the kids they were in the dances with and they loved the experience. So I just look at the positive acceleration in Gracie and Molly's life leading up to her death. So the beginning of the end of Molly, a thousand tiny steps to Molly. I would say if there was anything in Molly and Gracie's relationship that contributed to Molly not living was the fact that that both Gracie and Molly were concerned about me and that I'd be happy. And so I think sometimes they didn't say things. They didn't share all the times that Molly felt sick. I think they share with my mother quite a bit, but then I didn't hear any of this from my mother either. When I look back on what could I have done differently as their mother with them in their relationship, I guess they just worried about me more than I caught on to. I mentioned Kenny and I were really struggling in our marriage. I had helped that family and lost my job. And and so there were years from my job loss, which was 2010, 2011-ish, until Molly's death, all those years where money was an issue. I would I would take off and leave for weekends quite frequently. I needed, you know, I grew up watching my mother escape when things weren't great. And I think I just took that on as well. I had a, a very long-term on-again, off-again friendship with Roy. And I think that as Molly and Gracie got older, that became a bigger piece of what what was wrong in my own house. And again, that whole story, that whole story is podcast in and of its own. But it's a piece of it. It's a piece of Molly. You know, when I talk about all the ways I could tell this story, the medical side and the and the sibling side and the family side, if there were left turns that were taken instead of right turns around Molly's life ending when Gracie was 15 and Molly was 13, we had some upheaval in our family. Lawsuits are ugly things. And I can remember being questioned about the happiness of our marriage as if that absolved the doctors from not seeing a brain tumor that blew up in her head. You know, all of these things go round and round. When I wrote Molly's obituary, I wrote that Gracie would miss her the most, and she does. I firmly believe as much as I ache for Molly, it's a different kind of ache because I spent 12 hours a day away from Molly. Gracie was with her all the time. They fell asleep and twined in one another's arms Molly's last night here. That's the way they were. In that last year of Molly's life, seventh grade, we went up to see Concord High School. It's so Gracie could see where her classes were, and I couldn't believe she was going to the high school. And Molly was, you know, seventh grade is like the middle year. It's not a big year. And they just felt so grown up. I just remember the conversations and how excited, just how excited they were. In that last year of Molly's life, I think personally, the last two years, Molly's fifth and sixth, sixth and seventh grade year were tough for Kenny and I. We really came very close. We separated a couple of times. And he moved up north for a few months, six months or so in 2015. And then we separated again in 2016, where we shared the apartment. And we went back and forth week to week. Him not living here was impossible because there was too much. His health was such that he had to come here for dialysis anyway. He moved too far away. I had school board and a lot of other things. So we relied on one another in terms of child caring and co-parenting. You know, Kenny and I co-parent Jack really well right now. We have our disagreements, but you have to do this together. And I think in all of my decisions from from deciding to help that family and losing my job and losing Molly, 
making decisions that kept Molly and Gracie's life stable was my was my main focus. And I think sometimes chaos that created internally for me could have been a distraction. But Molly and Gracie had physicals and they ate well and any injury that either one of them had was addressed. I remember Gracie wandered off once, left school and walked to the YMCA by herself when she was in first grade. And I had all these panic attacks and had to go to the ER and have a CAT scan. And I had all these tests. I had great confidence in the ER. And in Molly's life, you know, from the meconium in her amniotic fluid to falling down the stairs here at home and almost hitting the radiator, to falling off the bed here and almost hitting the radiator, to falling at Kenny's work and bashing her face, all of these times that she fell as a kid that we could have looked inside her head and chose not to I go round and round. And then as she got older, you know, they're out playing and Molly gets the tick in the back of her neck, you know, and then, you know, a couple of years later, she gets Bell's palsy and, and joint pain. And we, we assume it's Lyme disease, which very well could have been. She had all of these symptoms that were symptomatic. Molly was the one with the medical issues. If somebody was going to be sick, it was Molly. And she began to develop these headaches. And so as Molly and Gracie grew and Molly's health became a bigger piece of her story, they really, really became supportive of one another and really nurturing to one another. And I remember that in seventh grade, Gracie would be in the car with me. We'd go get Molly to drive them to dance or my mother, whomever was doing the driving. And the first thing Gracie would say when Molly got in the car was, how'd you feel today? Did you feel okay today? And I would notice this, but you know, you don't wrap your head around it. I was so worried about not having screaming and yelling at home that I didn't pay attention enough maybe to what they were saying. And Molly didn't, Molly was a complainer. If something was bugging her, she'd share it. And so I didn't feel that I got that she came to me much. And I, you know, I wonder sometimes how Gracie feels about all that. But right up until the very last day, Gracie and Molly were side by each, not too close apart, <laughs> always, always right there together. And as Molly got sicker and the headaches became more intense, Gracie became ever more vigilant. Always wanted to know how she was, texting, are you okay? Gracie was the one that called me. I was in Boston the February before Molly died. And she's the one that texted to say something's not right with Molly's head. And that was first of many doctor's appointments that failed to diagnose the brain tumor. All through the last month of Molly's life, April, it was really Gracie. Gracie had been cast in the, in the Concord High School play, Anything Goes. They would come home and share about their play rehearsals. During vacation, last week of April, the last week of Molly's life, I was away on vacation. This is something that haunts me to this day, haunts me forever, forever. You know, I, I had gone round and round, you know, that whole last year, I think I had mentioned things with Kenny and I were probably as bad as they'd been. And while Molly and Gracie's needs were met, they made it to all their dance lessons and their play rehearsals. And we were at all their performances. Home was a bit chaotic. I had taken on a new job that took me away from them far more than I wanted to. I lost my VLAX job. It was just a very chaotic time. And I look at that whole year sometimes as a bubble. I haven't had a year like that since. Really, really just a crazy, crazy year, 2015 to 2016. Through it all, Gracie, Molly, Molly, Gracie. Every picture you see of them, they're touching one another. It's really, uh, those of you listening that have lost children, especially a sibling that's close to another sibling, I know that you know what I'm talking about. We have a local family here that recently lost two of their four children. I just ache at night for the siblings because it's unexplainable. Yeah, you know, and it makes no sense. And their day-to-day -day life is changed in many ways the most because it's kids, kids with kids. And Gracie's life ceased to be the same the moment Molly wasn't here. Gracie and Molly, and then Molly, Molly dying. I look back at that, the end of that year, Molly's birthday. She turned 13. We had a party. The video was hilarious. Molly has her play. They have their last dance competition. 
They have pictures. And then it's vacation. And we hang the costumes on the stairs where Molly's still hang in the spring of 2016. A very, very warm spring. I make the last minute decision to go to Amsterdam with Roy, which turns out to be the last week of Molly's life. I had a wonderful time in Amsterdam. I did. It was a vacation. It's a beautiful European city. I've spoken before perhaps about this one episode I had at the Anne Frank Museum where I had this, I read this quote from Otto Frank that it was heart-wrenching for him to read his daughter's diary and realize how little he knew about her. And for some reason, it just wrecked me. Molly was 13. I had to sit for quite a while. And that whole day was just, just not okay for me. I really, I really wasn't okay the whole day. Well, come to find out Molly, at the time I was at the Anne Frank Museum, she was up in the middle of the night puking and getting sick. And, and that was the day that she went to the doctors. And, and, you know, I tie all these things together later. But if there was ever universal energy that things weren't okay, it was then. But Gracie and Molly, that last week, I left them money. I left a list of things that, for them to do, to have Kenny take them to do. And they and their dad had the best week ever. So if there can be any silver lining in my absence, it's that they had a week with Kenny that they wouldn't have had. If I were home, I would have done all those things. I mean, we would have done things together, I think. But we were in such a state and in such a way that I'm not sure how that week would have been. Maybe the whole thing would have been different because I was home. Maybe maybe it wouldn't have ended in the ER. You know, all the what ifs and what ifs and what ifs. But they had a blast. They went to the movies with Kenny. They went for ice cream. They went shopping with my mother and my sister. We texted back and forth a little bit. Gracie was a bit more forthcoming with texting than Molly, although they did both ask permission to get on Snapchat. You know, they were 13 and 15 and they were just getting into the social media thing. Molly had an Instagram and so the, the last night of, of Molly's life, really, they watched Friends on the iPad and stayed up until one. I um, got home later, didn't have a way home from Boston to Concord Saturday night, so I had to wait until Sunday morning, which is another piece that, that will eat at me forever. And then Sunday was May 1st, and that's when Molly got so, so sick, and the ambulance came and took her away. And that was the last time she was home. And that was the last normal day of Gracie's life. How do I culminate this podcast episode? In a meaningful way, I guess I would have to say that, you know, I saw this I saw this on a TV show today. Dr. Seuss says, rather than cry about what you lost, smile at what you had. I think that's how it goes. That's the gist of it. And, you know, when people tell me to be happy because Molly would want me to be happy or say that to Gracie, we get so frustrated because we know she wants us to be happy. But we also know that her death was devastating. And I look at Gracie and her her journey to cope with it. And it's been arduous. We slept together on the floor for two years, Gracie and I. We did no, no, we did no holidays. We still, holidays are still minimal for us. They're not like they were. Molly was all about the holidays. Christmases and Easter's and Halloween costumes and the planning that went into these things. It was Gracie, Molly, Molly, Gracie. They ordered their costumes together. Sometimes they were the same and they matched, other times not. Nothing was the same. And when I look at Gracie's journey, her, her path is consistent with the path that the doctor told us at Dartmouth, that you give yourself a good five years before things even seem to be normal. And it took Gracie two years before she finally said, you know what? I want to sleep up in the bedroom again. It's going to be my senior year of high school. I want a normal, happy senior year. And, and then she would have profound guilt for feeling that way. Like the only way to be happy was to forget about Molly. And that's the difficulty. You know, put it away, put it away. Don't think about it. Well, okay, if I don't think about it, I'm not sad, except I am because I can't not think about it. And so Gracie's senior year was a, was a huge effort on her part to take take part in everything, to do all the activities. She had a boyfriend and, you know, she just wanted wanted her senior year to be a normal, happy senior year like anybody would have. And for the most part, it was. 
and she culminated it with this beautiful speech at graduation, the memory chair speech. She was articulate and eloquent, and it was phenomenal. And then off to college. And this is when, for Gracie, these slow steps started, started being a bit easier. She had a bedroom that wasn't the room she shared with Molly. We actually only took that bedroom apart recently, I would say within the last year. She just finally realized that's my room. And so we pushed the beds together and she moved in, but everything is still the same. It's still a, the room, a room that a seventh grader and a ninth grader put together and she wanted her own room. And so that's been a process. Together, as a family, we, we put things away. You know, Gracie's ready for some things to be put away before I am. We don't throw anything away in this house without the three of us agreeing it's time or pack it away or take it off a wall or whatever, because we all have our journey. All three of us right now leave the dance costumes hanging on the front steps and, and the front staircase in the hallway. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how I'll feel when they're gone. I, I don't know. They were there when I left for Amsterdam. They were there when I came back from Hanover. They've been there since before she died. And so these are really tricky, difficult things. And Gracie has her, Gracie has her lists of things and, and the things in the room that remain. We haven't undone the Molly wall yet. All the things that Molly hung up when they made their room together remain there. Well, that's Gracie's journey, but she won't do it until we're all ready for it to be done. And I think we are. I think when Gracie says, Mommy, I'm ready to take those things down, then we'll take them down and we'll figure out what to do with them and how to, how to either give them away and share them or honor them. Gracie was a big piece of giving Skylar Howard Molly's pink violin. And that was the right thing to do. We gave Anastasia Judge the other little pink violin. You know, when it comes time to give these things away, you know, Gracie's, a, we're, we're all a piece of it together. I think one of the biggest decisions that Gracie was a piece of when we became a family of three was Molly's Unplugged Day. And I'll get into the details of that in my next podcast. But I have to say the girls, Molly and Gracie, Gracie and Molly, no space. It was the two of them and me feeling like they would have each other forever. Their last first day of school picture, they balked at it. And I said, you know, someday when you're 80, you'll thank me for this. Not knowing it really was the last picture the two of them on the first day of school had ever taken. So I'll end here. Uh, you know, Gracie and Molly, there would be no Gracie if there were no Gordy, and there would be no Molly if there were no Gracie. And had Molly not died and set our world askew, there would be no Jack. So I have incredible gratitude with all my children, and every one of my children come on the tales of tragedy or are attached to a tragedy. And it goes back to the whole theme of my podcast. Every good thing that happens to me is tied into something tragic and terrible. I know that for those of you that knew Molly and Gracie, some of these stories will be repetitive and you will remember them. For those of you that don't, I have to just tell you that if you have children and you can cultivate their love for one another in a way that celebrates their unique differences and reminds them that one might be an apple and one might be an orange, but they're both fruit and equally delicious, then they won't have the sibling rivalry and difficulties that so many siblings can have. They loved one another from the beginning. Living without Molly is the single most difficult thing I think Gracie has ever had to do and hopefully will ever have to do. I don't think anything could be more difficult than this. You know, wood when I say that. I look forward in some ways to continuing the story. It needs to be told. As I, as I record this now, Gracie's in her room with little earbuds on. Kenny's out driving around with Jack-Jack so I can get this done. And here I am delivering my final podcast attempt for the day. <laughs> I can't talk. Yeah, this is like number five. So back to things that make you happy. In the moments after Molly's death, the things that made Gracie happy was attention from her friends. It was just very easy for her to be completely made to feel better by a card or a gesture, a text message or a phone call. And as the years go by and people forget Molly, 
And I know that sounds harsh, but they do. Molly isn't to them what they what she is to us. And grief is different. And as as Molly becomes less of a part of those the lives of her friends, because they're young adults now, and Molly is still 13, kind gestures go a long way. And Gracie has an amazing, an amazing circle of friends. And Gracie goes out of her way to do kind things as well. I've rolled over in the morning and Gracie's put a cup of, cup of coffee on my bedside table. It's a very nice gesture. She'll pick up Jack-Jack when he's fussy and, and schmuggle him up and change his diaper and, and care for him. She does wonderful things to make people happy. Uh, some of the things that make me happy, again, are the small gestures. I have a good friend, Lisa. We do CrossFit together, and she is phenomenal. And she understands trauma. She lost a sibling, so she knows what, what child loss does to a family. And we have very similar issues around childhood and some of our childhood traumas. And so we just connect and click. In some of my personal struggles in this first year of life with Jack, she's been unbelievably supportive of me. And she took it upon herself to give me a morning dose. She calls it the morning dose. and She sends me a funny meme so I can start my day laughing. And it's just the sweetest thing. She does this every day for me. You know, she's just the truest friend. They don't have to be big, giant gestures. She sends me a meme. Some of them are inappropriate and some of them are puns. And some of them I have to read 50 times before I get it. But it's the sweetest thing ever. And it makes me happy. It's just a good thing. And it makes me happy. I think Molly would be glad that I have a friend like that. And I think Molly would be glad that Gracie has her circle of friends. These wonderful, wonderful people that surround our family with love. And, you know, for Kenny, it's the same. Just, you know, when I clean up the kitchen and do all the dishes, because that's, you know, on Kenny's list of things that he does, you know, it's just one less thing he has to do that day, which, of course, is all it takes to make somebody happy, I think. So I'll end here. I'll get more into some of the specifics around her illness and death in the next podcast and our experience at the hospital, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which was phenomenal and is much more than a hospital stay and impacts hundreds of people. So, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for being willing to listen <laughs> to me tell my story. And please, if you get anything from it, I hope that it's helpful. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.